Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. Hi, I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. Today, the president signed an executive order around police reform, though it played out more as a defense of the police. Today is about pursuing common sense and fighting, fighting for a cause like we seldom get the chance to fight for. We have to find common ground. But I strongly oppose the radical and dangerous efforts to defend, dismantle, and dissolve our police departments. Americans know the truth. Without police, there is chaos. Without law, there is anarchy. And without safety, there is catastrophe. But one of the issues activists say will be key to reform continues to be argued over. It's called qualified immunity. It's a type of legal immunity that protects police officers from many lawsuits. William Bode is a professor at the University of Chicago Law School. He's a constitutional scholar and an advocate for rethinking qualified immunity for police. He started by explaining why he believes Republicans shy away from discussing qualified immunity. Qualified immunity is seen as being a sort of law enforcement versus everybody else issue. So uh, if you want to seem like you're, you're defending law enforcement, it seems like it's a bad idea to reform it. Hmm. it it's, and I want to get to it because I, I have to be honest, as somebody who, who's in the media and hosts talk shows, I, qualified immunity doesn't always... You know, automatically, I'm not sure what it is. So explain qualified immunity and how it how it pertains to police departments. Right. So if you try to sue, uh, you know, normally the government is supposed to obey the Constitution. Uh, that's sort of the job of the Constitution is to restrain the government. It's the fundamental law. But if you try to sue a government official for violating your constitutional rights, courts will say, even if the government official acted unconstitutionally, you still can't sue them. You still can't get any damages unless they acted so unconstitutionally that only a only an idiot would have done this. Mm-hmm. So it protects a huge amount of unlawful conduct. Now, and and how did that come about? I'm, I'm interested in how that doctrine kind of came about and became part of uh, protecting police. Yeah, well, that's sort of one of the most disturbing things about it, actually. So Congress enacted a statute a long time ago after the Civil War saying, you know, if state officials violate your rights, you should be able to sue them. Uh, because the you know newly created rights are really important, and then about a hundred years later, uh, the Supreme Court started basically inventing this doctrine that said that when police officers violate your rights, even though the statute doesn't say anything about this, the courts are going to give them kind of a an extra thumb on the scale, some extra breathing room. Hmm. And and is that was that were there a lot of cases at that time? What what was the reason for doing that? It just seems like that would be almost uh, antithesis to what the Congress was trying to do when it came to uh, sort of you know, including rights. Yeah, you would, you would think. I think the court decided they didn't really care about that anymore. <laughs> you know, it, it starts in the 1960s with Chief Justice Earl Warren, who was a big champion of, of equal rights and expanding rights. Uh, and I think he thought that as part of sort of creating all these new rights, he had to give something back to government officials to kind of uh, make up for the fact that he was, he was creating a bunch of new rights. So he said, well, we'll create these new rights, but then we'll give you some extra, some extra breathing room. Well, let, let me... Again, the 19- Go ahead. Uh, so then again, in the 1980s, the court sort of returned to it, and I think had the sense that it's, there are more and more lawsuits uh, being brought against the police officers, and the court sort of wanted to step in and do something about it. Well, what constitutes, you know, as a, a, a police officer clearly violating someone's constitutional rights? Yeah, it's really hard to it's really hard to figure it out. So the Supreme Court has said that uh, 
it has to be an officer who is plainly incompetent or who knowingly violates the law. And in theory, that could mean that it's just like such an egregious abuse of power that you can just tell it's unconstitutional. But in practice, what it means is you have to find another case where something really similar happens. So if the police officers, you know, tear gas your house while they're looking for a fugitive, then you have to find another house tear gassing case to be able to show that it's clearly established law. Hmm. William Bode's my guest. He's a professor at the University of Chicago Law School. We're talking about uh, qualified immunity. So one of the reasons this is back in the news is the U.S. Supreme Court yesterday, they dis- they declined to hear cases that's that were seeking to reconsider the doctrine. And why do you why did they reject it? Why reject taking that issue on? Because if there have been courts in the past that have taken it on. Why, why did the U.S. Supreme Court say not this time? Yeah, so there are two possibilities. We don't know why. One possibility is they think the doctrine's just fine. You know, they made this doctrine up. Maybe they like it. The other possibility is they recognize something has gone wrong, but they're actually they've noticed that there's a sort of a moment where Congress might step in to reform it, and they don't want to steal Congress's thunder. Hmm. I hope it's the latter. <laughs> well, Congress is divided, obviously, because uh, re- Republicans, like I said, they're not going to touch it, and Democrats, we heard yesterday, want to make this part of their centerpiece. Uh, we talked to Senator Durbin. Uh, about reforming. Is is there a difference between reforming and ending? I mean, w- should we expect that there should be some reform to to the doctrine or or are calls for ending uh, quality immunity actually realistic? I, I mean, uh, I think there's a huge range of options Congress has. That's one of the good things about Congress. They could they could end the doctrine only for police officers or only for certain kinds of claims, or they could even say, you know, we'll keep some of the doctrine, but it's but it's gone too far. And that's one of the things that will emerge from the process. I hope Republicans don't just give up on the conversation entirely. Mm-hmm. What cases stand out to you that, that might have been different outcomes? I know it's a hard, hard question to ask, but, you know, if the doctrine was not in place, what are yeah, real-life so, scenarios if the doctrine was not in place that cases that, the real cases that stand out to you? So here's a real case that, that the Supreme Court just denied uh, that I sort of referenced a second ago. So it's a case called West versus Winfield, where the police are looking for a fugitive. They think he might be in his ex-girlfriend's house. They go to the house. The ex-girlfriend is standing outside, and they say, can we get inside your house to look for this fugitive? And she says, sure, and hands him the key. They try the key. The door won't open. So they do the logical next thing, not really, which is to get a bunch of grenade launchers and blow holes in the windows and fill the house with tear gas, rendering it uninhabitable for two months. And he wasn't even there. Okay, so uh, th- that's a great. This is, so this is this is a sort of like uh, an unbelievable invasion of somebody's you know privacy rights, property mm-hmm. rights, without mm-hmm. any kind of warrant, without any kind of justification. Uh, but still, the court said, "Well, it's kind of a strange scenario. We've never seen it before, so we'll give the police officers immunity." And you know, sorry about all the damage they did, but you're out of luck. It's such an interesting point because we see this in Chicago. We saw, I think it was CBS2 just recently did a, a whole string of investigations of, of police officers going to the wrong addresses and, yeah. and knocking doors down and, and realizing they're in the wrong spot and then just being able to leave with no repercussions. And I think what happened was that the police you know, are investigating based on, on those investigations from CBS. But that kind of falls into the same category, this idea that there's really no repercussion for somebody to sue the law, sue the police department uh, when things like that happen. Yeah, and, and part of what this is showing is how, how much of a double standard it is. So, you know, if you or I, you know, make a mistake and violate the law without realizing it, we can still get in big trouble. There's an old maxim that ignorance of the law is no excuse. But if a police officer makes a mistake, the courts give them sort of the benefit of the doubt that we don't get. Mm-hmm. And you think it's anything, you know, they're actually trained, they do this for a living, Maybe we should hold the police to a higher standard than the rest of us. Yeah, right. But it's backwards. Well, let's let, I would flip it for a second. What are supporters of qualified immunity? What do they say are the benefits? Because I can assume that this was put in place 
for a reason so that civilians couldn't just, uh, you know, clog up the courts with lawsuits against police officers. But but what are some, what do supporters say are the benefits of qualified immunity? Yeah, so I think one thing they'd say, which is true, is that, you know, police officers have a really hard job. And, like, every day they're out there forced to make kind of split-second decisions that are that are hard to get right under pressure. So maybe we should give them qualified immunity to give them, you know, some, some breathing room. Mm. Now, if you ask me, we're not doing them any favors by telling them that we don't care whether they follow the law. We ought to sort of make sure the law is rational and then figure out how to train them to follow it. But that's one of the things, one of the things they'd say. Well, we're discussing qual- – go ahead. Oh, is it, the other thing they'd say, I think, is, is back to what I said earlier, that qualified immunity does make it easier for courts to recognize new rights because you, you recognize a new right and it sort of lowers the consequences of recognizing a new right. But we don't recognize not a lot of new rights anymore, and we still have the doctrine. Yeah, uh, we're talking about qualified immunity here on Reset on WBEZ. Uh, William Bode is a professor at the University of Chicago Law School. He's a constitutional scholar and an advocate for rethinking qualified immunity for police. And I want to ask about rethinking it because obviously you've heard the courts say we don't really want to touch this. We'll let Congress kind of work it out. It's one of the theories. When they're working it out and they're rethinking qualified immunity, what's going to go into that practice? I mean, is, is it going to just fall along partisan lines, or how, what do you think about rethinking qualified immunity? Yeah, I hope it won't. I mean, I think that's what's, what's happening right now. But, you know, until recently, nobody was taking rethinking it very seriously. So I'm hoping that, that we're still in a time when, when that can change. Republicans used to believe, I think, in, you know, the Constitution and the importance of adhering to the Constitution, government officials uh, not going outside the law. I hope they'll rediscover that. Okay, so I want to play this clip because we played this clip yesterday for Senator Durbin. It's, it's one of his uh, colleagues in uh, Republican Senator Tim Scott. He was on Face the Nation on Sunday, and I played it. I want to play it for you because I played it for Senator Durbin yesterday. Uh, go ahead and take the clip. From the Republican perspective and the president has sent the signal that qualified immunity is off the table. They see that as a poison bill on our side. Decertification would be a path that I would be interested in looking at. That is a path that has got a roadblock because I don't have the votes on the other side to, to make that into law. Okay, so what do you think of that? I mean, that, that again, it's this poison pill idea. So when, when you hear that and, you, and, and when Democrats want to put something forward that have to do with qualified immunity and you hear the, the, the rhetoric that this is a deal breaker, what does that say to you? I mean, that says that we have a long way to go before we're, we're ready to reform it. I hope you know, people who say that will start looking at how the doctrine actually works. Yeah. All right. So what is the likelihood of reform? You know, in the short run, I'm certainly not, uh, I'm certainly not holding my breath. Uh, but in the long run, I do think we're more and more people are starting to realize you know, how many abuses there are and starting to think that, that maybe it's time to do something to, to fix this. Mm-hmm. And as an advocate, what do you personally see as the most problematic part of upholding quali- qualified immunity as we know it today? I mean, I, I think the worst thing about it is just the, the sort of the sense of a double standard it creates. You know, uh, there are lots of cases where it, where it means that innocent people can't recover, but, but fundamentally it creates the sense that the police are above the law and it ought to be the opposite. Mm-hmm. William Bode's a professor at the University of Chicago Law School, and he's a constitutional scholar and advocate for rethinking qualified immunity for police. Uh, professor Bode, appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. This is Reset. We're talking about why it's so hard to hold back bad acting police officers and hold them accountable for misconduct on the job. So we just discussed uh, the idea of reforming qualified immunity. And I want to talk to I want to bring in a new voice to this conversation around police reform. Echo Yanka is a professor of law at Cardoza School of Law in New York City. He focuses on criminal law, political theory, policing practices. Professor Yanka, welcome to Reset. 
Thank you for having me. So, uh, you know, we were just talking with Professor Bo just about the idea of what reform looks like. Are, are you think how important is it do you think that that attention is being given to this particular issue? I think qualified immunity is important for many of the reasons you just discussed with Professor Bode. It's a symbol of accountability and that the police are not above the law. Um, but most of us understand that qualified immunity is hardly going to be the thing to reform policing. It, it's an important, maybe smaller piece of the puzzle. It's an important symbolic piece of the puzzle. But the truth is, um, you know, police officers, you know, let, let's put it this way. Um, if I blow up a building, right, I'm going to get in lots of trouble in lots of different ways, but it's not going to be the cost of the building that stops me from blowing it up, right? I'm, I'm a single person. I can't make that building whole. I can't pay for it. Um, so it's not the money that's going to do it. And police officers are often indemnified by union mm-hmm. contracts mm-hmm. or willingly by police departments who will then pay for whatever damages they cause. And then police departments in turn often don't even see those funds come out of their budgets. The funds come out of the general city budget. So the police chief doesn't even feel it if a police officer misbehaves. So you have layer upon layer. It's very hard to hold this police officer financially accountable because of qualified immunity. Even if it were, it's not going to be the thing that changes things. It's it's amazing to me because we're going to talk about the use of force policies a little bit later in the program and, and how many major cities, I think it's 20 American cities, actually uh, violate human rights uh, law uh, from the U.N. So I, I'm interested, you know, why there why we find that there's so many bad actors in this profession. Is it cultural? What what is what's what's allowing the wrongdoing to persist? We have to start to we have to understand that if we're going to change the problems in policing, it's going to have to be a thoroughgoing start from the beginning kind of thing. Right. Part of it is who we let in the police departments. We know who the police are often. We uh, we have police initiates take a battery of psychological tests and we often sort for aggressive police police officers. You know, I sit on panels with terrific police chiefs who will tell me about new training and de-escalation measures only to have their rank and file say, I didn't get in this to be a social worker. I want to be a cop. Um, and those police chiefs have a fight on their hands to say, if you thought being a cop was adventure and busting heads, maybe you shouldn't be a cop. So it starts from who we let in. Mm-hmm. And then the police uh, union contracts that make it very hard to fire bad officers. So who we can get out and then even if you end up firing those bad officers, the fact that they can simply re-up at another department who we circulate. So we're going to have to start changing policing from the bottom and top. And that's even before we start discussing whether or not the police are the right are the right thing for such a wide swath of social problems. You know, when we talk about qualified immunity and like you said, just it's not it's not the end all be all, but it's part of the process. How important is it to the police unions? How important is the police officers the quality uh, qualified immunity stays intact? Oh, I mean, so, of course, you know, the police unions, especially the powerful police unions, I'm thinking of uh, Detroit, uh, Detroit, Chicago, New York, L.A., you know, big police unions have remarkable contracts. And they are, as Professor Bode was saying, they are so protective of officers in ways that establish a stunning double standard and qualified immunity is part of it. Right. I mean, you know. I would feel a huge relief if I knew that if I burned down a building, somebody else would pay for it. So, of course, if I have a union representing my interests, they're going to go for that. Mm -hmm. But people also have to be aware of the incredible protections police officers have when it comes to criminal prosecutions as well. 
they're treated in a way that no other criminal suspect would be. And so police union contracts have secured a wrath of protections, which, you know, if they're the protections we want every citizen to have, maybe that's how we should go about it. But the double standard between police suspects and ordinary citizens, whether it be qualified immunity or criminal prosecution, just is uh, intolerable. It's it's interesting, too, because we just heard uh, U.S. Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina in a clip, and we talked to Senator Durbin yesterday, and they seem to be far apart when it comes to including qualified immunity reform in any sort of police reform. And you're going to see the president right now do an executive order, executive action. He's not going to mention it. So what is the consequence of inaction? If, if they can't come together and reform qualified immunity and it stays in place, what are the consequences of that? So to me, the consequences are not uh, are not so much the practical consequences of whether or not um, – I mean, those things matter. Professor Bode was talking about a case about a home that's tear-gassed and where you can't live in it. Um, and real people there needed real money to repair their home. But the truth is – the most important thing is it sends a signal. We've, we've become politicized in a way that merely speaking about police being accountable for obvious wrongdoing – is to be anti-police. And the fact that qualified immunity has been recast in that way and thus taken off the table says just way too much about the toxic culture that we've rolled into the idea of law and order, right? I mean, how we can be against police accountability and that makes you anti-police is baffling. And we need to be able to short-circuit that framing. Yeah. And before I let you go, you know, with so much conversation around the idea of police reform, it almost becomes this sanitized phrase that people don't even know what that means anymore. When you think of when you think about police reform and the discussions uh, continue to take shape, what do you want to see happen? Look, I mean, what I want to see happen is what we've seen historically happen in especially wealthy and white communities. um, What we see happen now um, across the racial gap. What I want to see happen is that we recognize that the deepest problems we have in America, we cannot police our way out of. Right. In, at the turn of the century, when poor immigrant communities were considered criminal and not American, we didn't just only police them. In fact, we invested in community centers and after school programs and job training programs and public parks. That was the progressive movement of the turn of the uh, century now, two centuries ago. Um, when the opioid epidemic rocketed across America, consuming communities, we said, you know, poor mill towns in the Rust Belt will lead to hopelessness and drug use. When it was drug use in the African-American community or a crack epidemic, we said, well, send in militarized policing Mm -hmm. and make sure they don't come over here. So if you ask me what I want to see in police reform, I want us to recognize that um, we can't just have, you know, white problems be social problems and black problems be policing problems. Right. You know, there's going to be so much made. And it's such an interesting moment right now because you're, you're seeing both political parties want to wrestle and take control of what police reform looks like. Is that good for the country? Is that good that you're going to have more uh, like the political process and the, the two political parties are going to be aggressive in, in almost wanting to claim police reform? Well, I, I don't think, you know, I think I'm on a wait and see mode, right? The, the knee-jerk reaction until the ground moved under them was a Republican reaction that any talk about police reform, as we said, was anti-policing. Even now, as the president is speaking, um, he is framing the conversation about police accountability as being anti-policing. Um, and so, you know, when people hear defund the police, instead of hearing, let's invest in the social problems that cause crime, they hear, some, you know, 
you know, just anti-policing um, or anti-police officers. So, you know, I'm I'm in a wait and see mood as to whether or not Republicans will mm. come uh, with good faith uh, to to make really substantial arguments about how we meet in the middle. It's just it's such an interesting moment because it is the rhetoric is as important as actually the reform. Because you see, like yesterday, we were talking with Durbin, and, and he, Senator Durbin, and you know, he talked about being really upset at the phrase "defund the police," that it was it was hurting his political cause. And you hear police reformers is police reform is anti-police. That it just almost seems like the rhetoric is getting in the way of actual reform. Yeah, I mean, so I'm sympathetic to the to the fact that political causes need to be persuasive, but. You know, a lot of us in particular, a lot of us from minority communities get a little bit exhausted with this, right? I mean, you know, if the whole question is about whether or not you've chosen the right slogan, that is not a seriousness of purpose, right? That is not recognizing what's really happening here. As though we would look at the civil rights era and say, what's the real question here? Is black power the right phrase? I mean, that's not the question, right? The question is about is an entire community being policed in fundamentally unjust ways? Um, and defund the police, okay, I, I don't know if it's the best slogan. I really don't. But here's my point. Again, 60,000 Americans died from the opioid epidemic. And what did we do? We started defunding the police. That is, we started moving money from what was a war on drugs to serious projects about rehabilitation and harm reduction. It's not complete. It's not perfect. There's still a lot of bad policing around drugs. But we defunded the police. And so, you know... Frankly, as an African-American man, I'm, I'm always suspicious when whatever phrase the black community comes up with is volatile and, and divisive, right? We have to do better than that. Echo Yank is a law professor at Cardoza Law School of Law in New York. Uh, fascinating conversation. Thanks, Professor, for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And that's today's Reset. If you're stumbling across the podcast, go ahead and subscribe. We've got great daily conversations around the topics that affect you, your neighborhood, and your world. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.